Thank you for choosing OECD Podcast. Welcome to OECD Podcasts, and I'm Clara Young. If there is one issue that is concerning to an increasing number of people that they're paying attention to and getting angry about, it's about income and wealth inequality. According to the OECD's latest figures, the top 10% of the population in all OECD countries own half the wealth, and the richest 1% almost a fifth whereas the poorest 40% own only 3% of total wealth, and the gap is getting bigger. I'm here with Nick Hanno, who is part of the richest 1%, and if you're counting billions, perhaps the 0.01%. He's from Seattle, and he made his money early on by being an investor in Amazon back when they were just selling books. Then he sold his company, Aquantive, to Microsoft in 2007 for $6.4 billion. He has managed, founded, and financed over 30 companies. And now he, he's the co-founder of Second Avenue Partners, which is a venture capital firm. Nick has also written many opinion articles for the New York Times, for Politico, and Business Insider, and he's the co-author of The Gardens of Democracy, A New American Story of Citizenship, the Economy and the Role of Government, published in 2011. And lastly, he is also an activist. He was involved in the Fight for 15, uh, $15 minimum wage in Seattle, and he also wants to raise corporate tax. So welcome, Nick. Thank you for having me. I think my first question to you is, you were just awarded the 2018 Harvard and MIT Humanist of the Year Award. Yes. And I think that was several days ago. It was. So congratulations. It was. Thank you. It's very fun. <laughs> in your speech, you said something quite interesting where you said true capitalists understand that every economic act is an explicitly moral act. Can we really say that true capitalists are moral people? <laughs> That's a great question. And I'm going to bob and weave here a little bit and just say that you took my remarks from the speech that I gave and prior to saying that every economic act is an explicit moral choice, I also said that true prosperity isn't GDP, which is a measure of outputs, but is best understood as the accumulation of solutions to human problems. And when you see prosperity in human societies as the accumulation of solutions to human problems, you can see quite clearly that some economic activity solves human problems and some economic activity actually creates more problems than it solves. And if you see it in this way, then you can quite clearly see that every economic act is an explicit moral choice. But of course, we don't live in a world that sees prosperity in that way. We live in the GDP-based world, something that y'all at the OECD are highly acquainted with. And in a world where we're simply measuring aggregate output as growth and where we define growth as good, anything which stands in the way of any kind of output, it must be bad, essentially. And that is one of the ways in which GDP corrupts our understanding of what economic activity is about because, among other things, it makes a company that creates cancer equivalent to a company that cures cancer if their sales revenues are, are equal. And that's, of course, that's crazy. 
And so in my speech, I was trying to make the point that if you understand economics in a modern way, and if you understand human prosperity in a modern way, it makes clear that everything we do as economic actors is actually a moral choice because we're either solving people's problems or we're actually bringing them harm. And so uh, to be clear, that is not the way corporate America governs itself today, which is why I suppose we're all in such deep trouble. <laughs> you are working on a book right now with Eric Beinhacker, That's right. who is the executive director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, yeah. Thinking at the Oxford Martin School. Yeah. What is the book about? So Eric and I are writing a book which largely ties together into a coherent sort of framework the last 40 years of research across a variety of um, disciplines uh, about, you know, the true nature of human behavior, the true nature of the dynamics of human social systems, and trying to figure out a better way of characterizing prosperity and economic growth. And the headline is that if you took a bunch of courses on neoclassical economics in college, virtually everything they taught you was not true, objectively false. That the idea, the definition, the assumption of homo economicus, people as rational calculators of their self-interest, is just objectively false. That's not what people are like, and there's an overwhelming amount of evidence to show that people are reciprocal, other-regarding, heuristic, and innately and intuitively moral. And a big part of our book is showing that that assumption isn't both just wrong, but it's also corrosive to the public good. Because if we accept that as true, if we embed that in people's heads, and then you look up at the world at all the prosperity and goodness in it, that you have to conclude, it must be true by definition, that selfishness is the cause of prosperity. And the more selfish we are, the more prosperity we create in our societies. And that is just not true. People are moral creatures, and it's cooperation that is mostly generating the prosperity we see around us. And by correctly locating what people are like, you draw a different kind of conclusion about economic cause and effect. And as a consequence of that, you can build a different culture, you can build a different set of stories, and you will certainly create a better policy framework for generating so prosperity. You're trying to change the economic narrative by saying that, no, homo economicus is not just everybody for themselves and selfish, rational gain, but that we do have an understanding of the effects that our acts have on others. Yes. I mean, every day we read headlines about more corporations um, avoiding or evading taxes <clears throat> or who are not, you know, turning a blind eye to sure. their supply chains. And That's because we live in a neoliberal world, <laughs> yeah. which has embraced all these neoclassical ideas that selfishness is good and righteous that the system is in equilibrium and the Pareto optimal. And if we try to advance the interests of one group, particularly disadvantaged people, we will destroy growth and harm the system overall. And these basic misunderstandings generated from neoclassical economics have been instantiated into our culture, into an ideological framework, and frame our policy. And honestly, give people in power, people like me and my peers, permission, social permission, psychological permission to do some pretty terrible things. 
all under the guise that the more of it we do, the more growth we'll have and the better it will be for everybody. And this lie, which we characterize in the United States as trickle-down economics, right. is largely an instantiation of the oldest lie that powerful rich people tell to less advantaged people, which is anything which is good for me is good for you. And anything which is good for you will destroy the society, <laughs> right? And so, and so that you know, neoliberalism, trickle-down economics—these are all instantiations of the mm. same sort of con job. I think the issue now of income inequality is making its way into mainstream <coughs> society, and, yes. and people are talking about it in newspapers, and many right. people are talking about it. Ordinary people are talking yeah. about it. What about among your peers? Are they talking about it? Are they concerned? Are they doing anything about it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been working on this problem of economic inequality for a pretty long time now, for at least 10 years, maybe 12 or 13 years. I can't remember exactly. But what I can tell you is that when I first started talking about inequality, it made my peers super angry and defensive because they felt like it was an attack on them, on what they had done. And in fairness, lots and lots of rich people, particularly people in the tech business, which is where I'm from, they're very bright. They work super hard. They did this thing. It worked out. They don't feel like they tried to harm anybody. They didn't try to create inequality. They just mm -hmm. worked really hard to build a business that turned out to be successful. And so I understand. I can sympathize with that defensiveness and anger. Um, today, I think people understand the dimensions of the problem a little bit more and are beginning to allow for the possibility that they may be part of the problem, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but it is a long way from recognition to being willing to take the steps that it will take to make the system work better for everybody, because that involves trade-offs that will be expensive and painful. What are these steps and trade-offs that you are working on that you think well, we need to do. Yeah. So there's a pretty easy way to characterize that, which is to think about what the median family in America anyway makes today and what they would make if they had fully participated in growth over the last 30 or 40 years. So the median family in America now earns about $59,000 a year. If inequality had stayed constant since 1980, mm -hmm. they would earn 86000 which is a shocking difference, right. 59 to 86. If that family had fully participated in productivity gains since 1980, they would earn over $100,000. Mm. If their wages had gone up. Yeah, right, mm -hmm. right, with productivity. So you could say that America owes the median family, the typical family, a raise of someplace between twenty-five dollars and $40,000 per year. And that is a lot of money times 100 million people right. <laughs> or whatever it is, right? Like it's just a lot of money <laughs> and, um, and speaks to the dimensions of how much the economy has left the majority of its citizens behind and how much wealth has concentrated in the hands of a very few people at the very tippy top, myself included. So right. it is easy to want to believe if you're very rich that this problem can be solved with a little bit better of an education system or, you know, raising the minimum wage from $7.25, which is where it is now, to nine or something, and it will all go away, or, or raising the EITC, the earned income tax credit, a bit. But this is nonsense, right? You're talking about a problem which is at the scale of 
2 or $3 trillion per year. And if we want to get our country back on track, that is sort of the scale of the problem we need to address. So if those measures are not sufficient, then what is? What is the radical policy shift that needs to happen. You know, Claire, the thing is, it's not that radical. Mm. Like, it really isn't that radical. So we should absolutely raise the minimum wage in the United States. First of all, we should eliminate the penalty for tipped workers who only earn $2.13 plus trips federally. And they should, that should go away. Um, And, uh, you know, I think it's quite reasonable to raise the minimum wage in the United States Uh, certainly on a regionally adjusted basis, to a minimum of 15. And for wealthier regions and bigger companies to raise it to $20 or $25 an hour, it is super reasonable to apply a different set of standards where today there are all these ridiculous loopholes, but that benefits will be universally applied, prorated to the number of hours that you work and portable with your job. So if you're a gig worker, if you work for Uber or whatever it is, you can still have those benefits. Uh, Another crucial labor protection in the United States is something called the overtime threshold, which is the threshold below which you earn time and a half for your hours over 40 hours a week. It used to cover 60 or 65% of workers. Now Mm -hmm. it covers about 8% of workers on salary. Uh, So you want to raise it to about $70,000. You should, of course, tax wealthy people again, at the rate at which they once were taxed, you know, at a 35 or 40% effective tax rate. Now it's about 20%. The country currently spends about a trillion dollars per year. Certainly this year will be a trillion dollars on stock buybacks alone, which is this ridiculous sort of financial manipulation thing that goes on in our economy. All of that money could be invested either in wages. Which concentrates the wealth even even more. more, right? So there are four, five, six, seven things that you could do that would make a radical difference in the lives of ordinary Americans and would inconvenience the wealthiest of us in ways that, you know, might somewhat reduce by a little bit, the length of the boats that we could afford to buy or the number of airplanes that we, but you'll we would own. But, will we, but we would, you know, we would all be fine. But the country would be immeasurably better off. The typical family would be better off. And be absolutely clear, the rate of economic growth would go way, way, way up. Because the more the typical person participates in the economy, the better it is for everybody over time. I think I'm just going to end this by asking about the minimum wage situation in Seattle because it's now been four years since the $15 minimum wage went into practice. And so what's happened? Has unemployment gone up or? (laughs) Yeah. As you know, if you take neoclassical economic theory seriously, we are always at a Pareto optimal equilibrium place where any gain here is a loss over there and where if you raise wages, you'll kill jobs. And indeed, when we talked about implementing the $15 minimum wage in Seattle, um, there was a consensus among the, you know, sort of the orthodox economic thinkers that the city would slide into the ocean, cats and dogs would live together, and it would be the end of times, and all the restaurants would close, and so on and so forth. And instead, what happened was that unemployment, the unemployment rate fell from 4.9 to 3.6%. The rate of restaurant openings uh, went up. That Seattle continued to be the fastest growing big city in America, and low-wage workers do a lot better now. Why? Because, and this is just baffling, but when even restaurants pay restaurant workers enough to eat in restaurants, it turns out to be pretty good for the restaurant business. Who knew, right? So <laughs> things are going really well in Seattle, unless you count the 
terrible problems of growth that we're currently facing, like homelessness and exploding housing prices and so on and so forth. But be clear, raising wages does not kill jobs. Raising wages almost certainly creates jobs because that's where demand comes from and jobs are a consequence of increased demand. That's more it. money in the pocket, more exactly. consumption. Exactly. Well, that's a good message to end on. And thank you very much, Nick. And thank, thank you for you. listening to OECD Podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs>